Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, an award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. Senior writer Joanna Robinson, and I am joined today from remote locations by our digital director, Mike Hogan. Hello, Joanna. And from the snowy peaks of Park City, our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Hello, Richard. Hello. We get a live and in-person update from Sundance in this week's episode. I'm really excited to hear all about what you've been seeing. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm obviously like mad from altitude sickness, so um, take everything I say with a grain of salt, but I have stuff to say. <laughs> Good. <laughs> it wouldn't be a Sundance report without a little bit of altitude sickness, but before we get into that, which is, you know, discussing potential award season contenders for next year, we still have some this year stuff to wrap up, starting with, you know, we got, we got a lot of more information, a bigger piece of the puzzle this last Sunday, when the Screen Actors Guild Awards were held. They aired on TNT. We saw a bunch of actors go up and get their statues and maybe cemented some narratives that we've been talking about for the past couple months. So I guess I will start with Mike and just ask sort of what was what was the narrative that you feel like most got set in stone by Sunday? Well, I don't know if it's set in stone, but I feel like Rami Malek could win Best Actor, which I didn't really think was the case before this. Clearly, you know, the Screen Actors Guild members really liked that movie and gave him Best Actor over Christian Bale, Bradley Cooper, Viggo Mortensen, and John David Washington. So um, that's definitely a very good sign for him. And then seeing Glenn Close win made me think, uh, okay, you know, she's in a good spot and very well could win that Oscar for Best Actress for The Wife. And then I guess maybe cemented is my notion that Mahershala Ali will win for Green Book. That seems at this point now fairly set in stone. Yeah, I don't think there's any question really about Glenn Close now. I mean, I think that not only has she had these two kind of preliminary wins in the Golden Globe and, and now the SAG Award, but she's given like good speeches. And I think that now everyone's like, okay, like that's what we're, that's how we're voting this year. That's how it's going. Glenn Close is telling us a story and we have to hear the end of it, you know, toward the end of February. So that to me feels certain. Mahershala feels certain. Rami, uh, I don't know. Like, I feel like that. I almost wonder if Christian Bale and Bradley Cooper are splitting a vote somewhere and Rami mm. is the one who's the kind of third place guy who kind of comes out with the, with the, the victor and all that. Because like, I, I don't, I don't, um, I don't know. I, I guess actors <laughs> are weird. <laughs> it's just everything uh. about that, that movie's support, considering that, you know, the Atlantic article that came out about Brian Singer. And I, I just am like, what, why are people holding on to this movie uh, so tightly? Richard and I both hopped like immediately on well not immediately on a on a you know time zone delay or Richard coming out of a Sundance screening whatever it was to give our maybe kind of cool takes on the SAG Awards on Twitter and both of us zeroed in on the same thing which is when was the window of voting for the SAG Awards as compared to when the Atlantic article on Brian Singer came out. And that Atlantic article detailing a um, number of accusations from young men about Brian Singer's activities, rumored activities, basically, you know, 
a known rumor for years and years and years, came out two days before the SAG voting window closed. So probably most people had already cast their votes by the time that article came out. And it's not, to my mind, and you, your mileage may vary, it's not that Rami Malek should be necessarily held accountable for Brian Singer's actions. Of course not. But... The the sort of the press he's been giving around it, which is just sort of a blanket, I didn't know, and the absence completely of any acknowledgement of it in his speech on Sunday is both a strategy and one that I don't know if is going to rub Academy voters the wrong way, rub me the wrong way. The point that I was making on Sunday was... Imagine an actress the last two years getting an Oscar for a Harvey Weinstein film and going up and not making any kind of acknowledgement of what that meant to some other women watching or anyone watching, you know, that would never happen. And so I'm curious if his SAG uh, speech, you know, helped or hurt his cause on Sunday night. And I'm also curious, you know, as Richard pointed out on Twitter, like, how much these conversations are just between us and if they actually touch any of the people that are voting on these awards. Well, I'm going to ask a question. Did Kate Blanchett address the Woody Allen stuff during Blue Jasmine? I feel like that was her very successful strategy was to just float above the whole thing. Exactly. Yeah, no, she, she, she mostly, she ignored it, yeah. Yeah. And But I think even, what was that, five years ago? Like, even then, that was sort of more permissible somehow it was pre me too so yeah that was a different a different era i think that yeah that's just like it, it's kind of like my existential crisis this award season where i'm like wait do the people we're talking about not care about the stuff we're talking about you know like it's not an obliviousness necessarily it's just a kind of like they're just voting you know on different criteria than i think maybe sometimes we're having these discussions well, I, let me. I have a little bit of color to add to the SAG yeah. thing. Um, two SAG members. I'm not. I'm not sure if they're voting members, but two SAG members that I know who are of a certain age. One of them texted me and said, "We just watched Bohemian Rhapsody and we absolutely loved it." And I was like, "Wow, okay, I'm happy for you." And they're like, "Yeah, we smoked a bunch of weed and it was so great." <laughs> so, so and it, actors are probably, I would guess, more likely than anybody else to say, hey, we can't blame the actor for the actions of the director, and let's talk yeah. about the performance and not, you know, this other stuff that's outside of the sort of what's in the film strictly. But then I also, isn't there sort of a narrative out there that Rami fired Brian Singer and, and kind of quote-unquote yeah. fixed the movie? So he sort of has that going for him too, right? That's the thing is like, uh, I think a lot of people see Rami as a sort of like folk hero in the Brian Singer story in terms of like, he got Brian Singer fired. I think there were like two weeks left of shooting or something like that when he got Brian Singer fired. Brian Singer got fired for a number of reasons, violating certain contract agreements that he signed. Right, and he sort of uh, went with AWOL Fox. for a while, right? Yeah, he went AWOL, like all this sort of stuff. But, uh, you know, by all reports, uh, his treatment of his actors is not good. And Rami Malek was just sort of like, it's me or him, basically. And, and with all this movie in the can, what are you going to do? And so, yeah, I think there's a sense of the fact that Rami stood up to Brian in that moment and the fact that he was fired. So maybe that's like problem solved sort of thing uh, is maybe how some view, people view it. Of course, it's not problem solved when Brian Singer already has his next project lined up. It's not problem solved when Brian Singer is like on social media taking credit, even though he's not mentioned any of these speeches for all of Bohemian Rhapsody's wins. You know, if Rami Malek, once again, is not responsible for Brian Singer, if he would acknowledge what this means, what this time means 
to not just a certain community, but like all of Hollywood. Like if Me Too is important and it is, then this is important because it is part of that. You know what I mean? And the fact that it's getting other just because, I don't know, that there are gay men instead of women as as your victims here is, uh, you know, I think it's hard to watch, especially in the context of Bohemian Rhapsody, which is a story about, like, a gay icon. Like, all of that is of a piece that makes it all, you know, really, really complicated. Yeah, it, it's it's easy for me to kind of get lost in, in this sort of broader frustration and and then, you know, but, but you know, the, the heart of the matter is, I've, I've liked Rami Malek as an actor for a long time, and it's not the end of the world if he wins, you know, an Oscar for this movie that I don't think is very good and I don't think, you know, is directed by a good guy. So I, I, I shouldn't, like, I guess, freak out so much about it. It's just been an interesting season of disconnect, you know, uh, and I yeah. think that maybe that's a, a kind of broader thing for, for me to think about and other kind of you know, pundits like ourselves, if we want to call ourselves that, to kind of <laughs> think about it. And, and, and I don't know, maybe maybe I should be having more conversations with people who are actually in these voting bodies and, and trying to figure out like where their heads are really at before I kind of, you know, predict certain things that don't actually seem to be in the offing. I think it was also really interesting at the SAG Awards that we had a weird supporting actress category because the still presumed front runner to win the Oscar, Regina King, for If Beale Street Could Talk, was not nominated at the SAGs for, um, I don't know, mysterious reasons. And so it was like, okay, so who, who's the who's the, the runner-up there? Is it Amy Adams for Vice? People, I think, assumed that. Or maybe it's one of the actresses from The Favorite. No, it turns out it's Emily Blunt for A Quiet Place. It was such a genuinely lovely moment, though, because... As we chew over this narrative for months and months at a time, like by the time it, you know, the Oscars come around, it's either like the expected winner or like, you know, the person that, uh, or, or the second expected winner, you know what I mean? And so for Emily Blunt to be a genuine surprise, her genuine shock, John Krasinski's like shock and teary face as he watched her like give her award, which all seemed like quite genuine to me. Uh, but what do I know? I thought was a huge highlight of the awards. What did you think, Mike? Yeah, I mean, I and I am very happy about it just because I thought I love that film and I thought it was yeah. so innovative and I and she's fantastic in it on every level and I and I do think, you know, at its best an award ceremony like this where you've got a guild of actors who are seeing movies probably through a slightly different lens than certainly the press is or even the way directors see it or the way regular um, folks see it. It's fun because it highlights something and it makes you think, yeah, that really is an unreal performance, incredibly high degree of difficulty, dealing with all kinds of restrictions and restraints. Also, you know, dealing with kids and dealing with violence and sadness and joy. You know, it was like it, you suddenly think, yeah, good. I like that one, you know, and so that's what's fun. And that'll be the only award she gets for this role, presumably. <laughs> um, but uh, but she should be proud of it. It's interesting. I, you know, we, we talk about Regina King still being the presumptive winner, and, and that's how I was feeling. But I like to bring these little dispatches from Katie Rich because I'm sure our listeners miss, miss hearing Katie's insights on stuff. And she was telling me, as she was sort of watching the SAGs the next morning, she was telling me that I guess Chris Rosen, who we've spoken about before, friend of the pod, uh, what is his title at TV Guide right now? He's, I, well, I think he's the editor of TVGuide.com, yep, or TV Guide editor of TV Guide, Chris Rosen, apparently is known for his like wacky Oscar theories. And one he has percolating right now is not that Regina King's going to win, but that Marina de Tavera is going to win and like uh, for Roma. And that is, Where I mean, get that one. He sends me some <laughs> of his theories. 
He also thinks Black Panther's going to win Best Picture. Can we just roll out all of Chris's theories? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, tell me he's 85% uh, convinced that Black Panther will win Best Picture. But anyway, let's hear the Marina de Tavera one. Well, let me ask really quickly because Katie felt convinced. So my question is, is Katie just too far out of the game and like easily swayed right now? Or has Chris or have Chris's wild predictions in the past come true? Well, Katie is, you know, tending to two small children under the age of three, you know, so like that's probably <laughs> going to addle your brain somewhat. But uh, no, I mean, I think that the interesting thing about it is if you, you think about the SAGs and you think about the Oscars in terms of, you know, what got nominated for the acting prizes, the actors are the biggest branch of the Academy and they all voted to nominate the, you know, for the four acting categories and Marina De Severa being in there for supporting actress represents, you know, just a, a sort of broad support from the biggest branch of the Academy for Roma. So I guess the question is how broad is that support? Is there other support for her in other, you know, from other branches that, cause everyone gets to vote on, on who wins. But then you look at the SAG Awards, which is all actors, and they're weird. Like, you know, they're surprising. And um, maybe that means that, like, Marina de Tavera could be, she could win, even though she wasn't nominated for a SAG Award, which presumably, you know, the actors should have been kind of thinking in lockstep. I don't know. It's all confusing how these things work, but I like that theory. Apparently, according to Chris, he feels like there's a big surge for Roma that Regina, you know, not being nominated for the SAG means something huge, which is so funny because, like, all along on this podcast, I've been like, it doesn't mean anything. <laughs> but, like, maybe it does. I don't know. Chris has entered my mind, too. Anyway. Well, you know what? I, I think we're going to have to have him. I just told him we're talking about this, and, and I think he'll come on next week. So we can let him uh, explain it in full. Okay, he can de- he can defend his uh, his ideas. Well, uh, let me let me circle back really quickly to that Black Panther notion of his. I will say this: like, if our um, idea after the Golden Globes is like a speech can earn you something, you know, mm-hmm. then Chadwick Boseman's speech, which you know I would mark the highlights of the SAG Awards, being in my opinion the Alan Alda tribute, the Emily Blunt surprise win, and Chadwick Boseman's speech for winning Black Panther. Those were my highlights, and like that speech at the end of the night, which is basically you know the SAG doesn't have a best picture, but they you know use their best ensemble sort of award to anoint best picture in their own way. Chadwick Boseman's speech about being you know to be young to be talented to be black is just was a very very galvanizing charming moment the way he like didn't stumble too hard when Andy Serkis sort of popped into frame out of the corner of his eyes and like that was all just like made you I made me at home want a Black Panther win uh even more than ever at the Oscars so my favorite SAG moment was being on a shuttle bus in Park City with VF's own Nicole Sperling coming from a screening, going to VF's actual, we had a party here with stars for a star show and on the way to that and looking at our phones and Nicole just being like, what? <laughs> like looking at, like, I think it was like Emily Blunt's win or something like that. <laughs> but I did go back and watch on YouTube and I, I agree, Joanna, that Black Panther moment felt so good. In a year of kind of questioning it, you know, why are things winning and who's winning what, that felt sort of perfect in a way. It was like, yeah, that this, this feels good. So I wonder, you know, if that kind of moment in Chadwick Boseman giving such a great speech, if that affects, you know, how people vote for Oscars. 
for me, it would genuinely, and I know I'm the comic book person, but like it would genuinely feel like such a good win because Green Book and Vice and Bohemian Rhapsody and like all these other front runners feel like so, there's just going to be so much debate and anger and frustration and, and joy and like all of that mingled together. Whereas like from where I'm sitting, Black Panther, this is like a feel good win, I think. So I don't, I don't yeah. know. Even Black Klansman is going to, you know, maybe create that kind of controversy on the other in the other direction potentially. Although I haven't heard that many people complaining about Black Klansman, um, right. but Spike Lee is is generally kind of a divisive guy. You know, I mean, you didn't mention Roma, which would be True. a a quiet kind of I guess crowning of an achievement, right? And uh, and we didn't mention a Star Is Born, which oddly at one point seemed like it was going to you know roll through everything despite its you know flaws. But now it seems like people are very focused on the flaws. So yeah, I mean Black Panther would be definitely probably the biggest feel good win. I guess then there would be a big sort of cranking about comic books just absolutely taking over the whole world, akin to the popular Oscar debate. But it would have won fair and square the actual best picture, which is which is different. I think so. Um, I was listening to um, another film podcast that I will not call out by name, where they were they were all in a twist because they feel like Infinity War was the objectively greatest Marvel movie of la- or comic book movie of last year. I think that's nonsense. I think Black Panther <laughs> elevated. Ele- like I like Infinity War for what it is as a comic book movie, but like Black Panther, I really genuinely think elevates the genre. Ryan Coogler, you know, is just like a, a visionary director, and and so you know. The sight of Lupita Nyong'o bouncing around at the SAG Awards with with excitement that they won is what I want to experience again on Oscar Sunday for myself. Well, so. Right. And I think, I, I mean, tell me if I'm wrong. You know far better than me. But to your point, it's not just that Black Panther is demographically different. It's a different take and tone and, and approach to a superhero movie that maybe has more in common with, like, Avatar than Infinity War in some ways. It seems to me. You know, Infinity War is just, like, the apotheosis, maybe, of that type of a movie. But this is a, a little bit of a different twist. I, I think for me that the reason why Black Panther stands out among the other 22 you know, other Marvel movies is not just because it's a predominantly black cast and a lot of uh, women are in it uh, in, in central roles. It's the Marvel movie that really hones its political discussion into something really interesting because it's about, you know, this sort of long tale of colonialism and, and, and kind of American intervention in the wider world and what that means. And, you know, we want some reprisal for people who have been kept down, but also what does that reprisal look like? And, you know, Wakanda has this kind of interesting conversation with itself about we have all this technology, but we've been very secretive about it. How much do we share with the world? How much do we owe the world? You know, there's, so there's a really interesting kind of foreign policy discussion happening in that movie that the other Marvel movies, the Avengers in particular, have, have, have kind of poked at, but in a much more self-referential, like, what does a superhero mean kind of way. Yeah. But I think Black Panther considers a broader politic that and, – and I don't – and I'm not even – like, I'm not pandering to, to a movie and, and trying to, like – pump up a superhero movie's kind of politics, it really is smart on it, and it really does engage with it in an interesting way. So I think that's why, in addition to the kind of triumphs of re- representation that the movie is, uh, I think that's why it's connecting. That's, I mean, that's how I genuinely feel. There have been a couple movies recently that have really capitalized on this thirst to see representation on screen, and I would think, like, Wonder Woman and Crazy Rich Asians are both, you know, films that hit that, that mark. Those are both films that I enjoyed, but would never put in the best picture category. <laughs> 
category. And so that's so Black Panther, it's not just about identity politics or anything like that. Yeah. I genuinely think this is a film that, as you say, Mike, it just goes above and beyond in terms of comic book storytelling. I personally felt that same way about Logan last year, you know, so it's not the first comic book right. film to do this, but I think it is, you know, it, it has so much going for it and such a likable cast and team and all of that. So that is the win that I am back to rooting for with like a director win for Spike Lee and a foreign language win for Roma. You know, like this. The, if I'm building my ideal Oscar, which we'll all have time to talk about later on uh, as we get closer to the date. The other thing I want to talk about in terms of the SAG Awards is we saw, you know, the SAG Awards usually operate famously without a host. This year they brought in uh, the lovely Megan Mullally to host. I thought it was like a pretty much a miss. Like I, I was like, I, I, I like Megan Mullally and I just did not need her there. It didn't add anything to the SAG Awards for me. And so I'm wondering, you know, in, in the context of the conversations we've been having about uh, hostless Oscars, what the construction of that um like how that read to you guys did you yeah it's interesting because like you know a show does have to have some kind of crowd control you know like the the, it has to flow there has to be someone directing the the transitions right and i didn't really watch the whole show i kind of just watched like clips of megan mullally's you know kind of jokes which were not great but it did make me wonder like okay so the oscar no host idea is interesting because mike you've been saying you open with a big song great that that's that's your opening and i agree i agree that that would be the strong way to do it but okay but then what how do we get from that point to the first award is there is it like remember the years ago when peter coyote was like at this like round desk backstage yes. doing, doing all the announcements <laughs> that was so weird like is, is is it like one of those things where we just have someone some like voice of god being like and now you know and maybe, maybe that works but I do also worry that, like, the no host thing from the Oscars was not, like, a long-standing plan that they really, like, honed and sort of worked with. It was kind of a last-minute thing. So I think there's potential that the Oscars are a mess, is what I'm saying. (laughs) Well, I mean, everything has been a mess so far. Now there's all this, like, anger and debate and arguing over the decisions to give below-the-line stuff during the commercials and cinematography is now below the line. and, And you just think... What is going to be in this show if there's no host, if you won't let three of the five um, song nominees actually perform, if you're having all the below the line things not happen on screen, like you're really setting the bar so high that everything that happens on screen has to be absolutely fascinating and amazing. And it won't. It's going to be a bunch of mostly boring speeches there. I just feel like this thing is shaping up really horribly. I will say one thing that I want to predict possibly possible prediction is that there's going to be some kind of surprise host or group hosting thing at the beginning. I'm starting to think they're going to, they're going to bust something out and have, maybe they'll bring back some past hosts or something. I think they're going to probably engineer some kind of opening number. I don't know if you can pull that off, but in the world of surprise marriages and surprise babies and stuff, I I feel like a surprise opener uh, is not unthinkable. Excellent. All right. So um, do you have any predictions about who you think would be in the surprise group? I feel like, oh, my God. I don't know. Next week we'll, we'll come back to that. <laughs> okay. Oh, we, should, right, we, right. Should, we should mention um, that we had been talked uh, last week or the week before about a potential campaign save for, for Bradley Cooper in <laughs> yeah. terms of performing places. And, hey, what has he been doing lately, guys? Now I'm getting hubristic. I feel like 
I don't think Bradley or any of the senior people involved in Starsborn are listening, but I have a feeling some of the um, some of the people who actually make it all happen are listening. And my fantasy is that they're going to their bosses, telling them what to do, and they're and they're listening and they're getting huge raises. <laughs> this is my this is my goal for all of you guys. I just really like how many I got notes both on Twitter and in other places of people being like, "Oh my God, do you think Bradley Cooper's team listens to Little Gold Men?" Wait, so let's Look, say he's let, trying. Let's say what what happened exactly. So Gaga was performing at at the Garden, was it? I don't know the venue. And then Bradley came out and did a Jackson Maine thing, basically, and sang "Shallow" with her, right? And at one point, apparently, yeah. he air guitared, and somebody said you can really tell the difference between Jackson Maine and, and Bradley Cooper because the air guitar would have been cool if Jackson Maine had done it, but it was looked kind of dorky. Oh, <laughs> I just think that, like, you know, and, and Gaga was giving him this, like, I don't know, a, a god has decided to join us sort of uh, treatment. It was actually, like, I, w- I found the clips very charming and compelling. I mean, beyond the air guitar minute. And he actually, like, sounded pretty good. Like, you know, it's hard to sing in a large venue with, with monitors in your ears and stay on key and all that stuff like that. And he did okay on his harmonies and stuff like that. And I think, I think yeah, I mean, the, the, the notion that we brought up, uh, I don't know, last week or two weeks ago, whatever it was, is that, yeah, last week, that it was like, if Bradley Cooper decided to try, to decided to want to <laughs> run, he could still get this. And I don't know if that still still feels true after the SAG Awards, but um, but then like immediately, I think it's still there, right? I mean, <laughs> all right, yeah, because Rami, Rami is there's issues with Rami, starting with you know uh, the fact that I think for certain discerning cinephile types, they are going to think that that movie is not well assembled. And then I think something similar happens with, I mean, maybe all three of the movies that we're talking about aren't, aren't perfectly assembled, but A Star is Born works, especially that first hour. That's all I'm going to say. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I have been team Bradley since I saw A Star is Born, like of all the best actor nominees, I actually would be excited, like the most excited to see him win. So, you know, if he, if he wants to like go on Ellen again and, and be as charming as he can possibly be. And if that somehow gets him an Oscar, you know, at some point he's going to be like the Susan Lucci of the best actor category, right? He's been nominated a bunch of times. So we'll, we'll see. Or the Amy Adams of every category justice for Amy Adams someday, man. Um, all right. So is there anything else we want to talk about in terms of the SAG awards? No, I mean, I think that as a means of transition, I, I, I'm going to say that, you know, we're joking about, you know, Bradley Cooper's people listening to the podcast and uh, and telling him, hey, you should get up on stage and do some some singing. Uh, people do listen to this podcast. Like, I, I've been at Sundance <laughs> now for, uh, you know, just shy of a week. And, like, so many people have come up to me like, are you Richard Lawson? I listen to, I listen to Little Gold Men. They'll, like, recognize my voice. And I'm not saying that to sort of, like, I don't know, brag or whatever. It's just, like... Sundance, this is a concentration of like movie people and, you know, that we are being heard. We should not uh, take for granted, I don't think. That's our target crowd. That reminds me of Cam tweeting, um, Cameron Collins, Richard's fellow critic, tweeting, I don't know why people say no one's watching The Wife. It seems to be on every screen on this plane that I'm on. And I'm like, dude, you're on a plane to Sundance. You know, like, it's well, not, but anyway. That's a different kind of plane. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah the Sundance yeah. Express. <laughs> I mean, I guess I could talk about TV, but I don't know. We're so we're so in far in the movie realm that I'm, I'm going to leave the TV SAG discussion for, I don't know, next time we talk about a major TV award. And I will instead pivot to asking Richard what we should be talking about already for next year. Yes. 
What Sundance films from last year's festival are still in the mix right now, Richard, for this current award season? None? Um, like none, really. I mean, eighth grade was kind of the big one that people thought might, might be the holdout. Um, this is the first year in five years that a Sundance movie is not nominated for Best Picture. There was some question about whether 2019 would sort of, you know, correct that 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 injustice, I guess, for, for the festival. I don't know that I've seen a Best Picture contender here. I wonder, you know, if others might disagree. There's one big film called The Farewell that I have not seen that was a big hit and just sold to uh, A24 for, I think, like $13 million or something. That maybe seems like, because it's kind of a bittersweet family comedy with starring Aquafina and directed by Lulu Wang, who's a second time director, like maybe that could be, you know, one of those kind of moonshot Juno kind of Little Miss Sunshine best picturey things. But I think otherwise this year's Sundance is more a narrative about interesting performances and um, uh, maybe, maybe those, some of those will translate to, uh, to awards stuff in, you know, almost a year from now. So what, what's at the top of your list in terms of things to, to point out? Well, I don't want to shock you both. But I shocked myself by going to see a movie called Big Time Adolescence uh, that premiered here at the festival on uh, Monday afternoon. And I loved it, despite it being a sort of like raunchy, rowdy, and it's not really raunchy, but kind of, you know, very male teen comedy starring as a sort of teenage boy's older 'er ne'er-do-well friend, an absolutely wonderful Pete Davidson. It is such a good performance. I was like, what is going on? I tweeted out being like, huh, who knew? Like, it's so good. And and people were like, yeah, no, it, it really, he really is. Like, it, it, he plays this kind of, like, he plays a version of himself before he got sober maybe where, you know, he's kind of just like sitting around smoking a lot of weed, kind of getting in tr- like mild amounts of trouble, being a sort of not great influence on this teenage boy who's the brother of one of his ex-girlfriends. It's a really cute lived-in story, and he just fills it so well. It's just such a natural. It reminds me a bit of like Tracy Morgan on that great show, The Last OG, where yeah. you know a, a sort of previously like di- directly sketchy kind of comedy actor reveals that they're also a really just a great actor. Yeah. Um, and it, I don't know. I, I was I was like totally blown away by it, and I think I think a lot of other people were too. Wow. Thank you. Next. Yeah, so like um, an Indie Spirit Award for Pete Davidson? I mean, like maybe. I, I think more more likely he'll end up, you know, you know, if I'm at the New York Film Critics Circle vote, you know, 10 months from now, th- he'll get some votes for like Best Supporting Actor. You know, like I think that that's as far as that will probably go. Um, he'll be on some like people's list, but I, I don't, I think that the, the movie itself is really well-constructed written and directed by a first-time director who used to be Nancy Myers' assistant, which is interesting. It's, it's a little bit too teen, maybe, to, to really connect. It's not, and, and not in a teen way like Lady Bird or something. Um, although I was speaking with Kenneth Turan, from the Los, the, the longtime critic for the Los Angeles Times, who I hadn't met before, um, which is a nice thing that Sundance provides, is the opportunity to stand in line and talk to people like that. And he was like, I never go in for teen movies. You know, I'm, my, my grandkids are out of high school, and yet he also loved big-time adolescence. Yeah. So, so maybe, maybe, maybe there could be more support for it than I think. I feel like these these like very charming Sundance teen movies are exactly the kind of Sundance movie that doesn't do well outside of Park City. <laughs> do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, no, I was so. talking about it with 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 some some colleagues um, last night. Is that comedy? Uh, so many Sundance comedies just like 
play really well here up in the mountains, and then when they get to sea level, everyone's like, huh? Like me and Earl and the Dying Girl. Yeah. Patty Cakes, which was a huge sale from to Fox Searchlight two years ago that completely tanked. I mean, then you do have your Junos and you do have your Little Miss Sunshines um, that, that do go on to connect. But it's it's a harder equation. And I think another interesting story here from Sundance this year, um, for those who care about like acquisitions and stuff, is what a sort of interesting um, market it's been. Netflix has not bought anything here this year yet, whereas Amazon has stepped in, New Line has stepped in, um, you know, so there's more, you know, a couple other more traditional players. And I, I don't know if that's because they're trying to compete with Netflix or what, but there was a very big, broad comedy that played very well that was sold for $15 million to New Line um, called Blinded by the Light. And it's directed by Gurinder Shada, who made Bend It Like Beckham uh, 17 years ago, which is crazy. If you wow. Yeah. And it's a coming of age thing in the 80s about um, a, a, a Pakistani boy uh, who lives in Luton, which is this kind of like dead end. I don't know, industrial town outside of London who discovers the music of Bruce, Bruce Springsteen and, and, and it sort of propels him into a new creative life uh, and that takes him out of his town eventually. Um, so it's, it's, it's based on the, 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 um, the history of, a, of an actual guy. It's just sort of a based on true story sort of thing. And it's all this Bruce Springsteen music and it played like gangbusters here. People were absolutely gaga over it. I was less so. Um, I think the lead is really charming, but I think it, the movie itself has a lot of problems in terms of how it's constructed. But I think, again, it went for $15 million, and, but I just don't know how that movie plays when you're not in, at, in, in, in the Eccles Theater with a thousand enthusiastic people if it has the same effect. And I think that, that you know, we talk a lot about Festival Fever. I think Festival Fever is strongest at Sundance of all the festivals, and it's especially strong when it's a movie like that where people are tired and they just want something nice and comforting and they want good music and everyone you know goes crazy for it. But I, I don't know if that really translates to $15 million worth of, uh, of acquisition money. Uh, and yet there it is. So I don't know. Well, I did by the light. Keep an eye out for it. It could be the next Sing Street or it could be the next Me and Early Dying Girl. I don't know. <laughs> um, can you explain to me what I was seeing in terms of like fake cockroaches being strewn about the floor of, of a certain venue in Park City? It, it wasn't a certain venue. It was several venues. Oh, okay. It was, um, yeah, so Army Hammer, who's a, kind, of a, kind of a weirdo, it, it turns out, <laughs> uh, is in a movie called Wounds, a horror movie with him and Dakota Johnson. That I, I'm seeing it later this week. I think it's about a, a cell phone that's sort of possessed by some evil spirit um and it involves bugs somehow which i'm sort of dreading but army hammer had this like i don't know pocket full of fake cockroaches that he's been strewing around the festival wherever he goes <laughs> as a kind of weird viral promo for the film and it's worked because you've seen it on twitter you know yeah i have it works it permeated excellent and then i think the other like big movie that i've been seeing people talk about is late night there's been like i think a little bit of division at least in my twitter feed but you liked it right richard this is the mindy kaling film with Emma Thompson and that sold, I think for 13 million, something like that. Yeah, it's great. I, I, there are people who are like, Oh, the jokes were too flat. This didn't work. This plot point sort of doesn't make any sense. And you know, yeah, they're not wrong. I mean, it's not a perfect movie, but I had such a great time at it. And Emma Thompson is amazing in it. It's so fun to see her with this big chewy role to sort of tuck into and, and really make something interesting out of. And Mindy Kaling, who stars in it and wrote the film, you know, she imagines this kind of like alternate American timeline where a woman has been a, a late night talk show host for almost 30 years and is kind of at a weird career crossroads. Um, 
and and that's a kind of fun world to exist in and and it's an interesting backstage kind of thing about writers rooms and and it looks great and um it has good music and I, I i don't know i was so into it and i and i think that something that maybe got a little bit lost in the discussion of that film both positive and negative partly because it is this glossy kind of thing it's not a studio movie it was it did enter the festival uh you know for sale but it's it's kind of aping devil wears prada and other sort of big studio glossy kind of workplace comedies um is that it's a movie that's both written uh, and directed, the director is Nisha Ganatra, by women of color. And and even though it looks so traditional, it, behind the scenes there is something interesting uh, happening and um, past that. And the movie is this kind of gentle, I don't know, almost prescription for how in the immediate uh, at workplace diversity initiatives could kind of come about. And it's less about scolding Emma Thompson's character and more about opening her eyes to to broader possibility and, and what she could stand to gain from including more people on her team. And so it's basically saying maybe if you appeal to people's vanity and 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 their own, you know, their own sort of like fear of irrelevance, like maybe that's right right now a way to sort of get, you know, more people, more different kind of people hired uh, onto these things, which I think is an interesting idea. And um, I like that a, 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 a studio comedy or, or a, you know, kind of aspirant studio comedy like that is addressing that stuff. Mike, is there anything that you've been hearing about from Sundance that you want to grill Richard on? Yeah, I want to hear about the souvenir, this Tilda Swinton thing that you went for. Oh, yeah, it's great. It's an A24 movie directed by Joanna Hogg, who is really, really revered in like the British film world. But I've never actually seen any of her movies. She made a movie called Archipelago. She's she's worked with Tom Hiddleston a bunch. Um, so this is my first Joanna Hogg experience. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's this really interesting memoir piece. It's really based on her own life uh, as a young woman in film school in London. And it stars Tilda Swinton's daughter with Tilda Swinton playing her mom. And it's a great debut performance. And it's just a really beautiful memory piece. There's going to be a sequel already in the works uh, about the next chapter in her life. And the Robert Pattinson fans on Twitter are so intense and dialed in. They were faving my tweets about the this movie that he's not even in knowing that he's in the sequel to it, the planned wow. sequel. So, so yeah, if nothing else, I've pleased the Pattinson fans by calling it the best movie at Sundance this year, which I really do think it is. Um, all right. Well, um, is there anything else, any other highlights that you want to hit that the uh, Robert Pattinson fans can get excited for out of out of Sundance? <laughs> I'm seeing it later today as we, as we record. It's Tuesday. I'm seeing it this afternoon. Uh, Alfre Woodard is in a movie called Clemency, where she plays a prison warden overseeing, I think, like her 30th or something execution and so having a more kind of crisis of faith about that. I hear that Alfre Woodard is amazing in it. Um, I'm very excited to see that. I would love an Alfre Woodard Awards narrative this year. That, she's long overdue. She got yeah. some nods back in the 80s, but it's been a long time since she's had that kind of recognition and, frankly, that kind of lead role. Kira Knightley is in a movie called Official Secrets, which is about the woman who was kind of the whistleblower about the, the U.S. and British intelligence spying on uh, UN Security Council members in the lead up to the war in Iraq. She's great in that. Uh, maybe that could be a thing. Oh, and then lastly, Annette Benning playing Senator Dianne Feinstein in the report, which is about the torture memo and, and the kind of creation of that and the investigation in, in, into um, the U.S.'s uh, quote-unquote enhanced interrogation policies. She's great in the role. She looks exactly like her. Uh, well, you know, she still looks like her, but but they get the hair right. And it's a great supporting performance but yeah, otherwise it's been it's more been a festival about like 
crowd pleasy stuff and less 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 Oscar-y, which is fine. I, I guess maybe I needed a little reprieve from the Oscar stuff. Okay, so if you were to plant your flag, if you only get to pick one film or one performance that goes all the way to Oscars 2020, and I will uh, hold you to it. You'll be fined if you are wrong. No, I'm just kidding. Um, who who do you who do you predict? Is it Alfred Woodard? Aside unseen, like what is it? No, it's Annette Bening as Feinstein. I think because. Okay. All right. Uh, because it's it's in a movie that is so righteously about something that, that like a rare good thing that came out of Washington in the last few years, you know, uh, in terms of this, this report finally seeing, um, you know, the light, you know, coming coming to light, the public, you know, being able to to, to see it um, about this really terrible thing that, that this country did um, not too long ago, and I think that helping her is the fact that not only is she playing a real life person, which you know the Academy loves. But also, it's a senator from California. So, and the Academy voters love nothing more than about stuff that's in their own backyard. So, I think that could help it too. I know that Feinstein is 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 not you know a, a universally beloved figure, but um, you know I think she should have enough support that people will like Annette Bening playing her. So she's that's pretty. The one I would- yeah, she's pretty well loved in California. I will say this: like, I think I think this is one of those like national on the national level. People talk about Diane Feinstein, and they like occasionally when she comes up for re-election, they're like, "Oh, is this is this when California finally gets rid of Diane Feinstein?" And California's like, "No, we love her." So, um, I mean, not all up and down the coast, but you know, we 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 like Diane. We like that she's a senior member of the Senate. I think you've hit on something there. So, and and you know, as long as Hillary Swank doesn't make a movie this year, then like maybe you know Annette Bening will be. Um, will be in the mix next year. Um, all right. The last thing I guess I will uh, urge you to check out friend of the show, friend of the pod, Joe Reed comes on um, every year to sort of talk about the things we thought Richard's early Sundance predictions and all that sort of stuff. He has a podcast called this had Oscar buzz uh, and they just released their sort of in memoriam class of 2018 video uh, for this had Oscar buzz. And it is a treat to watch. So if you go to at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz, uh, if you listen to this podcast, you will really enjoy that video and all the all the films that we talked about over the year that didn't make it into the nomination crop. Uh, Richard. Until next week, until you're back from Park City, where can people find you in Park City? Uh, just, you know, stuck at the Eccles Theater watching movies. I'm at Ryla's on Twitter, um, and I do have some reviews coming in from the festival. I also have a piece that I wrote for the magazine, a kind of introductory essay to the Hollywood issue that is up if you want to read about me and, you know, the last 25 years of my movie going. Um, and it's kind of a personal essay that I'm very happy with. So, yeah, go read that, please. Yeah, and I mean, we should mention, as we have not, that the Hollywood issue of of Vanity Fair is, you know, has had its online release. You will soon be able to buy it in stores. It's got just a really glorious cover. And I think people are really pleased with the Hollywood issue this year. It's my favorite Hollywood issue we've ever done. So I'm really, really excited about it. Um, You can find me reading that over and over again in my home. Or you can find me on Twitter at Joe Wrote This. You can find me uh, on VanityFair.com. Mike is at Mike underscore Hogan. Katie, soon to join us again, is at Katie Rich. Soonish. We're all at Little Bill Ben, but that that Twitter account, I think, is a little bit more about But uh, (laughs) that's fine. Yeah, we'll blow the dust off at Little Golden Men. Um, yeah, and we should welcome our new producer and editor, Brett Fuchs, who's doing this episode, and we'll do hopefully many more to come. We were sad to lose Daniel Roth, but uh, we're happy to have Brett on board. And this week's award for the best reaction to this whole 
whole Oscar season goes to Mike Hogan. Wow. Thank you, next. 